Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Good evening. <clears throat> I'd like to start off the talk tonight with a, a favorite passage of mine from uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, a wonderful classic Dharma, um, brilliant Dharma book by Suzuki Roshi. He says, uh, in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you'll find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of meditation practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not right understanding. If you practice meditation in the right way, it doesn't matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice meditation with the great mind of a Buddha, you'll find the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you'll find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of meditation, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will often find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Comforting, isn't it? <laughs> Unless you happen to be one of those yogis that sits in full lotus and 
are just cruising along, <clears throat> in which case there's hope for you yet. Uh, <laughs> but it's so easy and um, um, strong inclination to see ourselves in relation to others and to see how we're doing, how do we compare with others, am I a good yogi, am I one of the worst yogis here, um, have you seen that in your, in your own practice? <clears throat> um, Bhante talked about this yesterday, the Buddha's, um, the Buddha's teaching on mana, M-A-N-A, the Pali word that um, is often translated as the conceit of I am. And by conceit, he doesn't necessarily mean Oh, better than, that's often how we use the word conceit in, in terms of, um, in English. Uh, but any kind of separating ourselves out and getting caught in selfing. And um, I think it was mentioned here, in, in the stages of enlightenment, as many of you know, in, in the Theravadan model, there are four stages of enlightenment. Stream entry, uh, once returner, non-returner, and arhat, fully enlightened being. And at various stages, different um, fetters or obstacles fall away. And you might be comforted to know that the conceit of I am doesn't fall away until you are fully enlightened. So if you find yourself comparing and selfing, one way you can think of it is, well, you're no higher than third stage of enlightenment. <laughs> this is, uh, let me see, I have it here. What the Buddha had to say about this tendency of mind. He says, one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person notions equal or superior do not exist. An accomplished person does not by philosoph philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for he is not of that sort. For those who are free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosoph philosophical opinions such as these, they wander about the world annoying people. And you can guess who is most annoyed by the mind that gets into this. Especially on a silent retreat, nobody knows what's going on in your mind but you. 
which is both the good news and the bad news. <clears throat> so I want to talk tonight about this tendency to compare ourselves and to judge ourselves, others, life, <clears throat> the judging mind, the comparing mind. <clears throat> when does it happen for you? Have you noticed when it tends to arise, particularly in, uh, on retreat, in, in the more mm, social situations, like mm, sitting down at the table in the dining room and there's people near you. you know, notice what the mind does. There's somebody eating very mindfully. Oh, look at Miss Mindfulness over there. So <laughs> impeccable, you know. You know, oh my goodness, how much they put on their plate. Wow, you know. I dropped a fork. Everybody knows, you know. You know. Or in walking practice, another very common area rife with the judging mind, the comparing mind. You know, I think Monte was talking about it uh, the other day. You see somebody who's who's uh, walking so slowly, wow, look at them. Or who are they trying to impress and prove? You know, the same, same exact stimulus can have a very different response just a couple of hours later or see somebody walking fast and it's, gosh, they're just themselves. They're not trying to prove anything. Wow, I wish I could be that unpretentious, you know, or don't they get it? Why don't they slow down? I think you're in New York or something. You know, just the mind will go everywhere. <clears throat> and particularly, not only what they're looking like outside, but what am I looking like in here? <clears throat> On one retreat, here many years ago. Um, in my early days of practice, I really got into slow walking. I, I, I tend to not do it in that ridiculous, not ridiculous, I shouldn't say ridiculous, strike that. In that <laughs> I mean, I really went for it. So it would take me about, you know, 45 minutes to go from the hall to the bathroom, kind of, you know, or to, to my room. I, I, and, but I loved it. I was just really, as you, may, you might find out, when you get into that groove and it's just, it just feels so good and you're not trying at all. Um, so I don't want to discourage those who are, who are into that, that uh, it's beautiful when you're practicing that way. But I could see myself when I was all by myself, I was just really delighting at it, lifting, moving, placing. When somebody else would come by, I'd have a whole different reason for practicing that I started to notice and name. I, you know, I, I use use mental noting uh, to a great extent. And I'd be, after a while, I'd be noting lifting, moving, looking good. <laughs> lifting, 
looking good, looking good. Because that was what was going on in my mind, you know. And we come from such a competitive culture, those who are, for better or worse, uh, living here in the U.S., you know, we're number one, we're number one. And probably each, uh, most countries have that feeling of, of pride. Um, even if you go to football games and they sell the, the sponges with the, with the index finger sticking up, you know, number one, number one. There's a, there's a tremendous pressure that gets put on a culture that values being the best so much. And we do it whether it's our country, which is different than having pride in whatever particular characteristics your country has and feeling really um, mm, appreciative of, of your heritage and your past. But when it gets into comparing I, we are better. Uh, the mind just tends to do that, whether it's our, mm, our religion or our meditation. I'm a Vipassana meditator, yes. I'm, I'm of the Theravadan school, the real teachings of the Buddha. Yeah. Oh, those Zenis and Tibetans, they, they just kind of took the Buddha teachings and ran with it. I'm a Theravadan, yes. I know what the Buddha really said, yeah. You know. Or Buddhism or, and Christianity and uh, all the great world religions. Just think how many wars, how much hatred over each body of teachings trying to understand the incomprehensible all pointing to the mystery in their own way. Or whatever class or uh, ethnic identity. And again, so much pain in seeing as better or internalizing not as good from all the messages in the, in, in the culture or not even realizing that it is so um, internalized, whether it's privilege or internalized oppression, the, the great wounds in our culture, our society, in, human, in humanity, it doesn't matter what culture you come from, there is othering that happens, the comparing mind. And it also is true in our own within our own being, intrapersonally. My body, taller, shorter, curlier hair, straighter hair, priding ourselves on it or, or not, or our mind, yes, I have a clear mind. 
I have a creative mind. And it's whatever you've been gifted with, it's something to really honor and appreciate your, uniquely, your uniqueness. But if it gets into comparing, I am more creative than maybe everybody here. Or, the mind will go any place. Even, even to the point of, um, the, of our neurosis can be a, a badge of, of honor. I, I, when I remember going to college and when I was in college and reading a lot of existential literature, Camus and Sartre, and, and just feeling like the more screwed up one is, the deeper you are, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty deep because I am messed up inside, you know. And those happy people are just shallow, you know. Now I'm teaching about awakening joy, but that was where I, what, what it was, you know. Oh God, how shallow, you know. Don't they see what's going on? So when, when for you, you might, uh, I'll just take a moment and um, go inside for a moment and uh, to make it relevant to your own experience. When does it come up for you? Say here on retreat or in your, in your life, that comparing mind, either not enough, not good enough, or better than. Without any judgment, hopefully, just seeing the humanness in it, Remember, no higher than third stage. But just see how it gets activated and how, um, how painful it is. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. Mm. I'm remembering now, I hadn't planned on telling this story, but it comes to my mind around competitive practice. When I, the first years of practice, I, I was, was really wholehearted, gung-ho, and still am in my own way, but just a little bit looks different on the outside. And late night sittings was one place where I could see this happening, you know. I'm gonna be the last one here. You know. And then at some point I caught on to myself and I said, I think I'm gonna be the next to last one here. That's really cool. And I can I can let go of being the last, even though I know I could be the last, but I'll just let it go. Yes. And I I I remember going to Joseph in an interview and say I was seeing my mind do this thing and it was like, it was really humbling. And he told me a story, I don't know if, he's, if he shares it these days, but in his early days of practice, he said, I had exactly the same, uh, the same <laughs> neurosis, he didn't call it neurosis, the same uh, trip going on with my sitting. And he, when he, he said, when I was in the, Buddha, uh, the Burmese Vihara in, in Bodh Gaya, and I was, there was this guy, he's, he was from Denmark in the next room and there was no, uh, the wall didn't go all the way up to the top, 
so you could see if somebody's, if the, the person's light was on. And he was determined to sit longer than the guy next to him. And every night that darn light stayed on, he went through months of practice and finally when they spoke, he said, how did you do it? You never went to sleep. He said, oh no, I just slept with the light on. <laughs> it's amazing. And uh, it can happen even in the Dharma seat. You know, it's not that you, once you get to the Dharma seat, that doesn't happen. I, in my earlier days of teaching, when I, um, this is in the 80s, about 30, 35 years ago, when I started teaching bigger retreats with, uh, in the major leagues, and uh, I'd, we'd go, uh, and there'd be a retreat down at Yucca Valley, um, a big retreat center in Southern California, and Joseph would give a talk one night and just blow people's minds with clarity and depth of wisdom. Then Jack Cornfield would give a talk the next night and just hypnotize everybody with his magical spell. Sharon Salzberg would give a talk and tears coming down, (laughs) weeping with loving kindness. And then I'd have to go on. And I knew if I was in the audience, I'd be saying, get that guy off and get Goldstein back on. It was, it was really painful. And so here's the punchline to the story. This went on for some time, first couple, few years. And uh, it just got so painful. And I went to Ramdas, who is my my, one of my two main teachers, mentors, uh, along with Joseph. And I, I said to Ram Dass, um, who was really uh, impactful in my life, how many people have read Be Here Now Here? Uh, yeah, for those younger than, <laughs> than them, uh, that was a book that changed uh, a whole generation and and just changed my life. So I went to Ramdas and I said, you know, this is, this is crazy. You know, it, it's so humbling to, to give a talk and, uh, and just know that I'd wish somebody else would be up there. And Ramdas said, um, you know, Joseph Goldstein's already taken. Why don't you just be the best Jamie Barris you can be? I went by Jamie in those days. And um, it took me a while to, to really get that, oh, maybe I have something to say in my way. But it, it was a while to get there. We all are unique expressions of life that have never manifested in the unique way that they're doing through you. But... It's really painful, that prevalent, that, that comparing mind when we believe it. And it's really based ultimately in the sense of 
not being good enough or not being enough, that somehow if I were only a bit more, then I'd be okay. And we measure ourselves up against, you know, impossibly high standards or against um, what our last retreat was like. You notice that? You, can, you remember the very last few days of your last retreat where finally everything just falls into place and you say, I want to do this again, you know. <laughs> the hook comes back at you. And then you sign up and you say, gosh, there's so much sleepiness and restlessness, you know. It's not like it was. Yeah, but you forget how it was the beginning of that other retreat. But it's somehow rooted in, in the fear of not being good enough. This somehow the sense of unworthiness or self-judgment or self-hatred. Um, who was it? Sally mentioned uh, the other night when the Dalai Lama was here. I was at that retreat. It was in 1979. Uh, it was just a few months after the Dalai Lama uh, came to the States for the first time. And it was in this room and he had a Q&A and, and somebody asked about self-hatred. And like she said, it, it took a while for him to get the concept until he finally said, this is after two and a half months of people practicing. He looked at this guy and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Can you imagine after two and a half months of sitting, the Dalai Lama saying, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but he said it with tremendous compassion, something like, what makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of life? This is what I got from it anyway. I'm paraphrasing him. And somehow you're, you're a mistake. You're not good enough. This is, this is real misunderstanding. But we do it. There's a, a teaching from um, the um, Course in Miracles, a, a Christian body of, of wisdom, a beautiful set of teachings. And there's this one line I love that says, um, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. What makes you think that somehow you're a mistake or you're not good enough? <clears throat> the third Zen patriarch, one of my, probably my favorite piece of Dharma wisdom, um, has this line that I love, it says, um, to live in, in this realization, to live in, in the highest realization, it's pointing to, to live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in the highest realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That's when you know you've really made it. That it's okay to be perfect. It's okay to be perfectly you, just the way you are. 
instead of trying to be perfect, which is never possible. That's not what humanness is about. So first, how does this happen? How do we get into this complication? And we're talking about the uh, the five skandhas or five khandhas uh, um, the other day. And the third khanda, there's form, there's feeling, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then there's perception. And perception, as said in that um, uh, Q&A, is the recognition of what is here. Oh, this is a bell. And it, your, your brain or your mind files it and compares it and places it in your previous experience with a name and, um, and the familiarity of some, or non-familiarity of something that, you, uh, that you've experienced before. Oh, this is a bell. And then it's a just a hop, step, and a jump to, or just a one one little connection to the mental formations about that perception. Oh, this is a pretty big bell. Not as big as some bells that I've seen, you know. Oh, this bell. Oh, it has a kind of nice sound, a little bit higher than the one that I know at home. And the mind starts to compare. And in that comparison, there is better or worse that often slips in, particularly around us. So to see who you really are is to see who you are Without, as the Buddha says, those notions of superior or inferior, but just this particular expression as being unique. And each individual expression of life has its own, um, its own beautiful quality. Ajahn Sumedho uh, talks about it in one of his books is the shining through of the divine. There, there it is shining through us in through a, a special manifestation. But what it is that shines through, we can't even take credit for. And so when you kind of feel you're not good enough, it's just. It's, it's creating a, a separation that really uh, doesn't have to exist. One uh, Tibetan master, Trungpa Rinpoche, I remember him saying once, timidity is just another ego trip. Timidity is just another ego trip. Or, um, let me see, maybe I have it here. Yeah. Here's Marianne Williamson. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this. She says, uh, um, your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. 
We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And uh, there's another quote I like. Uh, from Nyoshal Kempo, great Tibetan master. He says, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. So that's what we're, one way you can think of what we're doing here when we, at the beginning, took refuge in the Buddha. What does that mean to take refuge in the Buddha? On the one hand, there is that amazingly inspiring being who lived 25, 2600 years ago, who showed it's possible, but he showed it's possible for all of us. And when you take refuge in the Buddha, in a more fundamental way, you're taking refuge in your own capacity to awaken. It's a very profound thing to take refuge in the Buddha right inside. It means you can't, if you really get it, you can't pretend that you're not enough. So you might know this maybe intellectually, it's a whole other thing to embody it. And this is what we're doing more and more. I'm sure you've been touched and inspired by the Buddhist teachings that have made sense to you. And little by little, it's a matter of moving from the conceptual to the embodied. And that's why we're practicing here. There's a, a beautiful way of, of thinking of the teachings um, that's spoken of when you, first you hear the Dharma and probably when uh, the first time you heard the Dharma, like when I read Be Here Now or maybe listened to a teacher, something touched you deeply. Wow. And then there's understanding the Dharma where it's really starting to make sense to you more than just uh, a kind of inspiration as a possibility. Oh yeah, I understand, I'm starting to understand. Then there's realizing the Dharma where you have a, a true um, verifiably faith-inducing um, understanding realizing, oh yes, I get it. This is more than just an idea. I, it really, 
I really see it. I really get a glimpse of it. It's, I'm realizing what it's all about. So hearing the Dharma, understanding the Dharma, realizing the Dharma, and more and more after you realize it, then there's being the Dharma, where this is your home. This is, this is where you are living from. And it's not just an accident or a glimpse. You might forget, and until you're fully cooked, undoubtedly will forget. But this is more your home base perception of reality. So this is a process that we're in that takes a lot of patience, a lot of um, persistence, a lot of kindness. And I want to talk a little bit about both working with the comparing and judging mind and, and some attitudes also that will help you um, on, uh, in this process. First, one issue that's so central where the comparison comes in is uh, evaluating how your practice is going. You know, oh, uh, I was pretty clear that time. This must be going pretty well. I think, I think it's happening, you know. Or, oh my God, there's just so many emotions. I'm just this mess of, of, of emotions and, you know, going through a lot of tissues, you know, here. Or it can go the other way where you see people really having emotional catharsis and then you say, wow, my, one of my first retreats, I went to, um, I was sitting and everybody around seemed to be crying and going through lots of tissues. And I, and I was just sitting there in, out, you know, with my breath. And I, I, I went to Joseph and I said, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm doing it right. And I, I, I said, I don't know if I, I thought, I don't know if I'm getting my money's worth, but it, 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 it was more, um, everybody is, it seems like they're going through such deep transformations and I'm just sitting here feeling my breath coming in and going out, you know. What gives? And he said, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough, you know, and he did. Um, but we have all kinds of ideas about what good practice looks like. Hindrance-free yogi, uh, uh, you know, deep, deep, slow-walking yogi, whatever it is, and we measure up against that. And you have, it's really impossible to tell what your practice is, where your practice is by what it looks like from the outside. Sometimes you can be in very deep dukkha land and think, oh, what was the point of coming here? And not realizing this is going to be the richest retreat. This is where the gems will be discovered. This is where I'll face my fear and see, 
it's possible to not only survive, but see I have capacities for courage and strength that I didn't know were here. Oh, I can even see through fear. But while you're going through it, it just seems like nothing is going right. Or just the reverse, just, yeah, hey, I've been just kind of just feeling really good these last week and a half or so. I'm really going now. And it might be really going well, but it might be just that you're coasting and not playing your edge. You don't know. But here's one thing that you can use to, if you, if you want to get a sense of your, mm, your quality of effort, rather than looking at the external, keep checking in with your sincerity. That's the key ingredient. Just your willingness to show up as best you can and willingness to come back when you see you've gone. And your sincerity will sometimes lead you to do very different things. If you see that you're doing whatever you're doing in support of your practice. And so you might, might notice, you know, oh, what I really need to do now is just really do the schedule and, and not take breaks and just really give myself wholeheartedly to it. But it might mean I need to have a cup of tea and just chill out. I'm trying a bit too hard now. I need a walk in the woods. I need to sit here and, and be willing to um, touch my pain. It doesn't look any one way on the external, but just getting in touch and seeing, why am I doing what I'm doing? And if it's a sense that you're doing it to support your practice, I'm doing this so that I can really show up fully. Good practice. So it's more about your sincerity of effort, your sincerity of intention than what it looks like. And only you know. And that means you have to give up looking any way for others. What are they going to think of me? You don't have to worry about it because they're worried about what people will think about them. They're, we're all looking at what are they going to think of me and not realizing that everybody is having that same internal thought. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Just stay connected to something in you that loves the Dharma enough to come here on a retreat of six weeks or three months and says, I want to I wanna wake up or whatever it is that's touched you. <clears throat> a, few, um, a few things to, to keep in mind about working with this judging mind, this comparing mind. One is 
um, kindness and compassion with your process and forgiveness for all the ways that you don't quite measure up. We need to have a, a basis, a grounding of kindness in order to create enough safety and refuge and um, um, heartfulness to see clearly if we're struggling and trying to fit ourselves into some kind of imagined idea of good practice, that very struggle is contracting in the mind and you'll be working against yourself. So I say for myself, the essence of my instructions, I think I'll be giving instructions tomorrow so I'm gonna remind you again. The essence comes to um, being interested in what's happening being kind with what you see and kind with whatever your experience is and having a sense of ease and relaxation where you're not contracted. Being, that's it, a relaxed, interested, kind awareness. Interest is really the key. I, I mentioned this to somebody in, in an interview. I'll share it here. I have a... a a birthday card. Did I mention? I didn't mention it here. Did I mention it here yet? No. Uh, oh no, because this is the first time I'm speaking. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Uh, so I have a birthday card at home that I've never given away because I love it so much. And on the front of it is this baby, infant almost baby, but he. Um, He's holding in his hand a booger right out of his nose. If, if for those who aren't, English isn't your first language. Booger. <laughs> and there he is mesmerized, fascinated, and you open the card and it says, you always were easy to entertain. Happy birthday. Yeah. I aspire to boogerhood. Right? Just letting your natural interest bring you in and, and, and just for the, the sense of wonder. It's amazing. And as the meditation, as the mindfulness gets stronger, you want to pay attention. Here's a, a little... Um, uh, insight into the process. At the beginning, it takes some effort to be here. It's true, because we're so used to going past, future, fantasy, whatever, and it takes effort to bring yourself back. But as you put in that effort to be mindful, the mindfulness starts to get stronger. And when it gets stronger, you see more. And when you see more, it's more interesting. And when it's more interesting, you want to pay attention. And so it keeps on pulling you. Yes, oh, the present moment, it's so cool. <laughs> Have you ever had glimpses of that? The, the alternative is if you say, well, 
if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not. And it's okay, I'm just going to be, I'm going to lighten it up this time, you know. It won't really happen if you don't put in a, a wholehearted, a sincere effort. And if you're not so consistent in your mindfulness, and continuity is the key, continuity of awareness no matter what you're doing, then your mindfulness isn't so strong. And when it's not so strong, things aren't quite as interesting as your fantasies. And when they're not so interesting, it's boring. And when it's boring, you don't want to pay attention. Heaven forbid anything but boredom, uh, which is a whole other talk. It's a very profound thing to explore is boredom, but for another time. But when it's not so interesting and you don't want to pay attention or the mindfulness is weak, um, it continues to be not interesting and you are not, you're on a track to just intermittent mindfulness. So interest is the key. Letting that sense of wonder pull you in. At the beginning, you might need to... Um, trick yourself or pretend that it's interesting. But after a while, as it gets stronger, oh yeah, this is really, really amazing to see life so vividly. And everybody here has done retreats, so you know what I'm talking about. Interested, but relaxed, not pouncing on experience, just re relaxing enough so that the mind is at ease. And I like to make it like a game. That's what makes it a bit more fun for me because it's, easy, it's easier to pay attention when it's fun. So I'm just playing the awareness game. And it doesn't matter how long I've been gone, you know, oh, there I am, oh, come on back. It's just the game of awareness. Or walking, oh, let's see about walking. How interesting. There I am like a baby taking my first steps, you know. Just what is, what is going on here with walking? So interested, relaxed, and kind, which means whenever you see yourself wandering or see whatever is in here and it's, it's difficult, there's the kindness that's right here. I want to teach you, as long as I have a chance now, one way to bring this kindness to your uh, experience. And then some of you are familiar with this, but uh, I just want to, since this is one chance I have to share it with everyone, uh, want to share with you uh, the self-compassion practice that um, is is uh, so um, so helpful and effective a way to uh, to hold the difficulties. This was developed by Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, who've done a lot of retreats here and at Spirit Rock, who've kind of packaged in a simple formula what we do here. So this is the self-compassion break. When you're really having a hard time with the judging mind or with, um, with your... Uh, uh, meditation not going as well as, you, as you'd like, or you're confused. Very simple, a few different steps. First step, the way I like to do this, this is my own variation, and it's a little bit different than what Kristen and Chris said, but 
They said, yeah, that sounds good. You can do it your way. <clears throat> so the, what I do is start off, they don't start off this way, but I find it helpful to start off putting your hand on your heart. Because this um, physiologically releases oxytocin and soothes the, the system. Just try this, you might just try it. Just put your hand on your heart and notice what it feels like as you do that. And there's tenderness. If you don't do anything else but just do that, that's, that's good enough. And then they, they offer a few different reflections, three different reflections, and you can use your own words, your own variations. These, these are these reflections. Maybe I'll, I'll put them up on the board so uh, you don't have to worry about remembering. First one, this is, this is a moment of suffering or this is hard. Just acknowledging, oh, this is hard right now. This is a moment of suffering. Second reflection, suffering is a part of life. And you might think of all the people in the world who are going through what you're going through right now and just including yourself in there. Suffering is a part of life. And may I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. This is suffering, and suffering is a part of life. And may I hold my, my suffering with kindness. And as you're doing that, you can both be the one that's receiving that comfort and also the one that's giving it. There's a wise one that can hold that, uh, that hurt one or that confused one inside. So it's a kind of coming into wholeness. Okay, so that's one way to hold it. Uh, actually, I'll share with you my own version of this that I used with the judging mind for, for quite some time uh, in my early years of practice, just looking at the judging mind, because I, I saw I really had a judging mind, you know, maybe even better than yours. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I really wanted to work with it. And so this is what I would, I would do uh, at some point. I, I need to change my relationship to the judging. And this is what I would do. And you might close your eyes again as you do this so you don't feel a little, you don't feel too self-conscious. And just imagine that you had a real um, harsh judging thought. And you can try this out. Put your hand on your cheek and just feeling the tenderness in the cheek as you silently say to yourself, oh, judging, judging, like it's okay, just judging. And feel the, the tenderness in, in the noticing. Okay, you can open your eyes. I did that, that was my main practice for about two years. 
both in retreat and at home uh, in daily life. It wasn't like I did this each time, although I did it a lot at the beginning. You know, you can kind of surreptitiously just kind of touch yourself. But what happened after a while was the tone in my mind started becoming softer and softer to the point that that's, that was the response. Oh, it's okay, dear. And then whenever I'd have a judging thought, it was, it became another opportunity to practice compassion. Letting the, uh, the Kuan Yin right inside of you do the noticing because she or he is right in there. So self-compassion, forgiveness, just for all the, the times those habits have been created, they're just habits of mind that need to be held with kindness. Um, Another way to work with the judging mind is uh, having a sense of humor. You know, if you can move from, oh gosh, look at my mind, to, wow, look at the mind do its thing. If you go from my mind to the mind, that's a huge shift because then you're not taking it personally. So to laugh at this mind, on, on one l- retreat here, it's interesting, it, being here I get in touch with all of those moments. Uh, uh, on one retreat, again, working with the judging mind, there is this line from the Third Zen Patriarch, the same one that I quoted before, and it says, um, um, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. And that made a lot of sense to me. So I played this game. Every time I'd notice a judging thought, I'd tack on the burdensome practice of judging. And particularly say in the dining room, you know, oh my goodness, look how much food. The burdensome practice of judging, you know. And I would go through a meal saying that about 50, 75 times. After a while, the only thing I could do was laugh. Look at the mind, you know. Oh God, doesn't she eat any food? Is she a bird? The burden's the practice of judging, you know. And laughing makes a huge difference. Another thing is seeing the emptiness of the thoughts how empty they are. They've come from nowhere and returned to nowhere. Joseph has a very good instruction about this, by the way, that I highly recommend you trying. He says, if you're sitting in the hall and you're bothered by your thoughts, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. (laughs) Very effective, you know. You just kind of picked up radio waves, you know. For all intents and purposes, they, they did because you don't say, oh, I think I'm gonna have some a neurotic thought of doubt right now. It just comes on its own. So to not take it personally, there's tremendous freedom in that. And when you start 
seeing through that taking responsibility for your thoughts and you see how empty they are, then there's a tremendous freedom. And you see all those thoughts of judgment and comparing just habits, mental fabrications to be seen through. So kindness, compassion, forgiveness, seeing a sense of humor, seeing the emptiness of the thoughts, really learning to um, give yourself the same benefit of the doubt that you give to everybody else. Just your own sincerity, that's good enough. So I'll, I'll close with a, a poem that I love, if I can. Oh no, that's right. I won't close with a poem I love because I can't pull it up. But I'll close with a different, there were two possible endings. This is the, the courage to take a look inside and be with everything, which is really how we are learning uh, to see all the beautiful qualities inside. This takes courage. And I wanna share this beautiful poem, the willingness to go to those difficult places and see that you have everything you need. There's no comparing yourself with others. There's no comparison when you see it, when you see everything is right in here. And this is called Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. She says, willing to experience loneliness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight, to honor its form, true devotion. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you very much for your attention. See the Buddha right inside. That's where she is. That's where he is.